Welcome to the Replay Value Podcast, where we deep dive into the movies we all love to watch over and over again. I'm Phil, joined by my brother from the same mother, our co-host on the West Coast, Warren. What's up, bro? In this episode, we're going to talk about Quentin Tarantino's seventh feature film, the one-of-a-kind revisionist western, or as QT has dubbed it, the first southern, Django and Chain. Django! Django, have you always been alone? Django! Django, have you never loved again? Lord, we we'll live on, oh, life must go on, oh, for you cannot spend your life regretting. In the plot of this film, two years before the Civil War, a freed slave turned bounty hunter sets out to rescue his wife from a brutal Mississippi plantation owner with the help of a friendly German bounty hunter. Man, I love it when we do Quentin Tarantino films. Uh, every time we, we decide on which one to do, I'm, I'm always excited because it's just a, a great wealth of, uh, of, of movies to choose from. And this is one of our favorites. So we went and saw it uh, the day it came out, Christmas Day 2012, mm-hmm. and we have been fans of it uh, ever since. Well, you know, I'm excited to do a Tarantino movie, a Western, a Southern. Uh, you know, when you talk about the genre, there's so many subgenres within this movie, action, adventure, revenge, Western, spaghetti, Western. That's Tarantino's favorite uh, exploitation, drama, dark comedy, the revisionist history element to it. Uh, Tarantino is a genre filmmaker, perhaps one of the best at it. Uh, all of his movies have a high replay value, even Death Proof. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when I think of the films and we have to decide which ones to do, like I said, they all have a high replay value. So I, it's almost like ranking them uh, in order. So my uh, ranking my Tarantino movies out of the 90s done so far, number one is Pulp Fiction. I don't think that's ever going to be dethroned. What it meant to the industry, what it meant to cinema. Number two, Glorious Bastards. Number three, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number four, Django Unchained. Number five, Kill Bill. Number six, Jackie Brown. Number seven, Reservoir Dogs. Number eight, Hateful Eight. And finally, number nine, Death Proof. So you kind of you keep Kill Bill, you're, you treat them as one film when you rank them? That's how Tarantino, I mean, he shot uh, it as one that's film. That's true, that's true, okay. And when you look at a lot of his movies, Kill Bill and Django and, and Glorious Bastards and even Hateful Eight, he's had four hours worth of footage. He just cuts it down to about two and a half. Mm. Remember what he did with Netflix? He ended up making that a miniseries with four hours. He, he could probably do that with Once Upon a Time, Django, and Bastards if he wanted to with the leftover unused footage. I'm surprised you ranked Jackie above Reservoir. I mean, that's just, Reservoir Dogs, I mean, I don't know. I, I would have flip-flopped those, but I mean, that's an argument for another podcast to so, Maybe ask me on a different week, I might change it, but I don't know. I love Jackie Brown. It was underappreciated when it came out, and it's a great hangout movie. I, I just love when it's on, you're going to watch it. I'm also surprised that you had uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at three. I feel like, you know, in 2024, when it first becomes eligible to be covered on this podcast, it may have bumped up uh, to number two for you. So we'll, we'll see. Oh, no, no. It's going to be like Mad Max's eligibility. The window of eligibility, <laughs> the day we can do it, we'll do it. Uh, once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, last yeah. night I watched, uh, or excuse me, two nights ago I watched Django. And last night I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood just because I wanted to again. Anyway. So uh, great. Getting into talk about the, uh, the the creation, the genesis of uh, inspiration, if you will, of Django Unchained. Anytime you talk about a Tarantino film, it's almost like you have to have a lesson in the history of film. You have to have some knowledge of where we came from in movie making to see where Tarantino is taking us and where 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 it is now. 
Oh, because he pulls from uh, the best of cinema and he makes it his own. And he, when we talk about the subgenres within the movie, uh, you get a little bit of everything in a Tarantino film. It's so layered. Every time you see it, it's a different experience. And talking about the genesis of Django Unchained, here is Quentin Tarantino himself on how this movie came to be, where the idea came from. Well, I've had the idea for it, not a story, but I kind of had the idea for about eight years or so. Um, and the idea was, at its simplest form, was uh, a man who was a slave during the antebellum South, uh, before the Civil War, who uh, would get free through some circumstance which I hadn't figured out yet. Uh, and then he would become a bounty hunter. And in particular, what he would be doing is, you know, cause that happened all the time back then, is, you know, people would um, you know, do a stagecoach robbery or something in Wyoming, get a, uh, get a price on their head, then they go to the South and hide out on plantations as overseers. Yeah. And, well, that's right picking is all right to do a, a, a story like that and so that was just kind of the idea that was floating around you, you see where the idea gestated from and he, he said he'd been thinking about it for eight years but he started to crack the actual story during the press tour of inglorious bastards uh, he was writing every day as he, he said he was in the zone uh, at the time he was writing a book on sergio corbucci a subtextual film criticism book yeah, I'd, I'd seen that he uh, he kind of taken inspiration from the Corbucci spaghetti westerns and really his that that director's take um, on the the Wild West. It had this almost darkness to it, this evil fascist worldview, and that he he he's like, well, this could be the home of this story I want to tell about uh, America's past with slavery, but do it in the spaghetti Western genre and make it that th that type of a theme of a film. Yeah, just to back up a second on your point, that's, uh, is that every uh, director had their own version of the West. Uh, and some of the directors he loved was Sam Peckinpah, Sergio Corbucci's we're talking about, uh, Anthony Mann, Sergio Leone, who's his favorite. But uh, all having their own versions of the West, Corbucci had the brutal, violent, surreal West that you're talking about. And that was, uh, while deep diving into the Corbucci, Corbucci uh, book and studying Westerns, he had that revelation, hey, I can, I can do this. So that, that as you were talking about, that was more uh, or less the uh, jumping off point for Django. But I love those little ways that, uh, <laughs> that Tarantino can make, and Kill Bill is chock full of them, but he can take and he can pluck little things that were known, that a certain genre was known for and modernize them in his films. And one of the ones I love in Django is the spaghetti Western style that the quick zooms, where does it like zoom in from far away? That's the Hong Kong uh, close up, the Hong Kong close up or zoom in. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, it's, it, I believe it was more known for spaghetti Westerns, but he, he, that's probably why it was in Kill Bill a lot as well. Uh, but then you also take a look at like just, just that tone and just him being able to use that as a vehicle to tell the story of Django Unchained. It was just, uh, a, a great choice and his knowledge of film to be able to pull from that and apply it to this new tale was great. It was. And Tarantino being a master filmmaker uh, in, in a genre filmmaker, uh, his favorite genre is spaghetti Western. So this is his first true Western film. And uh, when you see all the influences, we talk about the directors, but some of the films uh, that influence QT uh, Django, not from 1966, uh, Mandingo from 1975, and the snow scenes are a homage to the Great Silence from 1968. Uh, and there's also some, uh, when you look at the costumes, uh, Screams Bonanza, you, you just can see it. Uh, and, of course, there's a lot of uh, references or homages to uh, the, the, the Dollars Trilogy and Once Upon a Time in the West. Well, I heard that he had, like, 
almost binge watch Bonanza to, to further get inspiration for like the look and the feel of the apparel that he'd worked with a costume designer on. Uh, but like, and like you said, the, uh, the Italian spaghetti, you know, those spaghetti Westerns, Silencio, the great silence uh, for the snow. And um, so he, he pulled it. And we, we've uh, talked about this in past episodes where these directors who are just students of film, uh, ever learning students of film will pluck from those inspired stories to make their own. An example I've used many times, Nolan doing the dark Knight. He didn't try to write. He, he wrote his own Batman film, but not from scratch. He took from the best ones that were out there. When Tarantino goes to make a spaghetti Western, he is going to be inspired by the greats to create something of his own. That is also great. Uh, and that, that he is the best at doing that. And his objective with this film was to take a modern day movie audience and stick them in the bleakest, darkest time in United States history. And, America's biggest sin, uh, which is the antebellum South at that time, and make the audience deal with it in an entertaining way. As you, you mentioned before, how does he do that? He does it as a genre piece. He avoided making the movie with a capital H, you know, for you know history. Right, and 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 I'll get into this later with the fan theory, but just that 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 trend you see in some Tarantino feel, films that realer than real universe. It's his take on history as he sees it. And he does it uh, in a way and makes a film in a way about a, a, a very uncomfortable subject for many people about a dark time in America's history that a lot of filmmakers don't have the capacity to deal with because of, it, of its very controversial nature. But uh, Tarantino does it in a way to where it does have, it's telling a story, it's getting the point across, but it's doing it in an entertaining way, but still teaching a lesson. But and it's still respectful and inspired, and and that's why it was received so well uh, at the end of the day because it's done. In, it's a high level art form that he's doing it uh, as he's accomplishing what he set out to do. And I do want to say you talked about one of the inspirations was the nineteen sixty six Django, uh, and then the title came from that and another film, Hercules Unchained, which was uh, nineteen fifty nine, as uh, you would hear in the Rocky Horror Picture Show an old Steve Reeves movie uh, where he plays a mythical hero that is actually escaping uh, enslavement. So it was uh, kind of a, an amalgam of those two titles. Mm. Yeah, but all of Tarantino's films, I've noticed a similarity when I look at his films. Uh, Pulp Fiction, some of the oldest chestnuts in the book we talk about with story elements. It's the same thing here. It's a spaghetti western, a folklore classic tale. A hero goes to save his princess who's being held at the evil king's castle. I mean, at its when you look at the, the, the simplest form of the story, it, it has a classical fundamental uh, theme. And it's almost, uh, you know, takes from the, uh, the, the story that, that, that King Schultz tells uh, of, um, of Siegfried, you know, rescuing Broomhilda. That's Django's tale. It's his version of that. Tarantino finished the script April 26, 2011, and started filming November 2011 in California. They also shot in Wyoming and at the Evergreen Plantation in Wallace, Louisiana, which is right outside New Orleans. And they shot in anamorphic format on 35mm film stock. Uh, anamorphic uh, widescreen, it's a... Um, it's a cinematography technique where they shoot a widescreen picture on 35 millimeter with a non-widescreen native aspect ratio. Long story short, that recreates the original aspect ratio on the viewing screen. Okay, and I wonder if he did that because of it was more of like it's better suited for a Western-style film. I'm not sure. I know 
Tarantino most likely had his reasons, but no, the film enthusiasts do that. Nolan did that with the Dark Knight, oh. so it's hmm. yeah, okay. Uh, filming lasted 130 days, the longest of Tarantino's nine movies thus far. They wrapped principal photography in July 2012. But, you know, when you talk about Tarantino and filming the movies, uh, he has a unique energy. His enthusiasm and love of cinema is one of the reasons uh, that his movies are so great because there's so much passion and love behind it. And you got to listen to him after they uh, finish a take on set. Yeah, that last one was the one. But we're going to go for one more. Why? Why? <laughs> that's you awesome could, that is awesome i mean you could tell that's just like a, i don't know just you got to keep people i want to work on a tarantino movie well i mean you got to keep people inspired through those long shooting days and you and for tarantino he is seems like the type that he has more passion for it and more love to be there than anyone else uh so that that's great love seeing that before we move on, this is the first Tarantino film not edited by Sally Mink. She passed away in 2010. Uh, this was edited by Fred Raskin, who was a editing assistant on the Kill Bill films. I, I love the look of this film, the style of it, you know, which we've talked about and been pulling from past films. One of the things he also did, it didn't stop at the story, the title, the filmmaking the genre. Mm-hmm. It also extended to, like we mentioned, the costumes. Like you know, we watched Bonanza a lot. Django's sunglasses came from Charles Bronson's character in The White Buffalo. His blue suit actually is pulled from the, I think it was 1770 painting by Thomas Gainsborough, The, the Blue Boy, uh, which is just a wild mm. reference. I mean, plucking that out of the heap, I mean, come on. Uh, one I really appreciated was uh, King Schultz's uh, suit. I uh, was uh, a direct inspiration from Telly Savalas in Kojak. Uh, and then one I know you'll love, Warren, um, Big Daddy, Don Johnson's character, he has that cream-colored suit. Think of Sonny Crockett. Miami Vice. Miami Vice, yes. Director uh, pull from that. Just kind of has that uh, tongue-in-cheek reference there. Uh, but I, I have to mention the, the music from the film, which will always be a mainstay of favorites uh, for uh, talking about a movie uh, of Quentin Tarantino. Uh Many tracks, of course, pulled from past films. Uh, Django uh, was not, despite the, the, the namesake, was not created for this film, which I was kind of surprised, actually, doing research. I thought it was, but it was the theme from the uh, 1966 uh, Sergio Corbucci film. I just repurposed it for this movie. Makes sense. Uh, and then you had the song Trinity, which was actually from the film They Call Me Trinity, which was a 1970 uh, <laughs> Italian spaghetti western directed by Enzo Barboni. I mean, just the, mm. sh- I mean, just can't say I've ever seen it, but just the sheer knowledge that Tarantino has to be like, oh yeah, I want to use that song. That's going to be great. I love that. Um, I mean, I think him and Scorsese are on their own level in terms of directors that have their understanding of music and how to incorporate it. And, and as we also mentioned, the late, great Stanley Kubrick in the last episode as well. I think those directors are on, on their own level. Oh, for sure. I mean, just how they incorporate it. And I think memorable music, it, it, it just elevates a film. You know, it really does. If it can, it can make or break a movie and, and just take it to another level. Um, he also used Sister Sarah's theme from Two Mules for Sister Sarah. Uh, it was 
It's uh, the song by Ennio Morricone. It, the film itself, though, Two Mules for Sister Sarah, another 1970 film. Uh, this one starring Clint Eastwood. So again, pulling back from the depths of uh, cinema history there uh, to include that. But so most of the songs were pulled from from, from past uh, movies or from past usages. Past westerns. Uh, well, not only westerns. Uh, he the, the song I Got a Name, which is a great scene in the film when they used this song, was from The Last American Hero. The song by Jim Croce was a huge hit uh, in, in, in the 70s. Uh, so th- th- not necessarily, just more so what fit the scene. Uh, however, there were four original songs that were written for the movie. One of my favorites, Hundred Black Coffins by Rick Ross. What scene is that? Uh, it's whenever it's showing, um, it's more of a montage and it's kind of showing um, uh, the, the, the traveling and you see uh, the slaves that are, that are, are marching along. Uh, so it's more so just the, the subtext of the scene and how it's used in the film is, is really powerful. Uh, Who Did That to You by John Legend, Freedom by Anthony Hamilton, and then an original by uh, Ennio Morricone and, and Cora Key, which didn't necessarily end, I guess, well as far as the relationship with uh, with him and Tarantino. Uh, after that happened, he, he said he really wasn't a fan of the film. Morricone said this. Uh, he was quoted saying that Tarantino uses songs without coherence and that he would never work with him again. However, he quickly said that that quote was taken out of context and then just a few years later, uh, he did the, the, the score for The Hateful Eight. So, and he won an Oscar. And he won an Oscar. So, yeah. Um, so, again, they, they have a mutual respect there um, and, a, and an established history. So, I, again, I would have to say that, yeah, it was, was taken out of context. But um, so a great soundtrack. I love it that, you know, you talk about um, uh, Scorsese, Tarantino, that, that they, they pull from this history to do that. And Tarantino, he says the reason he does that is because to have one person create the whole score of the movie, it gives too much power to one individual. Yeah, to give the, the to let someone have the soul of his film. And we'll move on to the stars of the picture. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. One of Tarantino's strengths, he's all we all know he's a great writer, uh, director, that that's obvious, but one of his greatest strengths is he's a great casting director. And his casting approach during the 90s, from 92 to 97, essentially his first three films, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, he casted actors he loved. John Travolta, Robert Forrester, you know, actors he grew up admiring and he wanted to work with and thought they'd be perfect for the scripts he wrote. In some cases, he even wrote parts for them. But in the 2000s, his approach changed. It became all about the characters and what was best for his characters and best for his script. And you can see that change in his casting he also has more had more cachet in the 2000s, so he's got a lot more stars uh, in the second half of his career, and probably the last four films he did. I mean, you got DiCaprio twice and Pitt twice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, if you could pull those actors, yeah, you got you got cachet. Yeah, yeah, especially when you get both of them in the same film. And we'll start at the top of the call sheet with Oscar-winning actor Jamie Foxx as Django, the protagonist, the hero, the uh, titular character. Um, he had another nomination for Collateral. Uh, and it's surprising he didn't get the nomination for this film. I, I think he did a, an outstanding job. Uh, all the actors in the film did. Tarantino has a way with the scripts of bringing the best out of his actors. But when I researched this part, Tarantino met with five or six different actors, most notably Will Smith. And Will Smith didn't take the part because he said, quote, it's not the lead, which 
Uh, I mean, who am I to argue with Will Smith? I love Will Smith, but come on, man. I would have, uh, as much as I love Jamie Foxx in this movie, how great Will Smith would have been. That'd have been something. I, it's one of those things where it's like if Tarantino comes a knocking, I mean, you kind of just, you take the part. I mean, Will Smith, of course, is in a position where he can turn down anything or anyone, but ugh, yeah, you, mm. uh, it's Tarantino. Come on. Well, Jamie Foxx went to QT's house. He did uh, answer the bell uh, and he, he went over and, really understood the story and what Tarantino was trying to do. At the same time, uh, Jamie Foxx liked what the movie said, and uh, he said it was the best script he'd ever read. When we do the recastings, I mean, it was very difficult to recast this role. I mean, how do you how do you replace Jamie Foxx in the role? It was, it was tough. Um, but he's a, he's a great choice for it. I'm, I'm glad Will Smith turned it down. I hate to say it. Love, uh, love. Uh, it's hard to imagine anyone else because he's so perfect for it now. Yeah. And uh, I'll go ahead and just throw out another what if that was also in consideration. Michael K. Williams, who was Omar from The Wire. He would have been great. Oh, my gosh. What a phenomenal actor. Uh, and then one that uh, I saw was that uh, Tyrese Gibson really wanted the part and even sent in, uh, sent in an audition tape. Uh, for the role, but uh, you know, obviously didn't didn't work out. Worth a mention uh, is uh, Jamie Foxx used his own Horace Cheetah, uh, uh, who was gifted to him four years earlier uh, in the movie. Wow, that is so cool! I love it to hear actors that either use their own horse or bond with the horse. I think of uh, uh, Viggo Mortensen for Aragorn and Lord of the Rings. He bought his horse because he bonded with it so much for the filmmaking. That's that's awesome when. When actors have that connection to the animal, which I mean, horses can be very dangerous if, um, you know, if, if something happens, uh, so it's, mm-hmm. it's good. You, you want to, it's almost like a stunt double in a way that you want to have that security, uh, that, uh, that, um, that, you know, they're going to get the job done and that you're going to be safe. What carrying his load. Yeah, it's about right. And moving on to Oscar winner, Leonardo DiCaprio as Calvin Candy, the antagonist, the villain and DiCaprio was a huge fan of Tarantino. Uh, anytime uh, Tarantino finishes a script, uh, Tarantino said that somehow um, uh, Leonardo procures a copy, even mm-hmm. though he doesn't send it. So he's like, yeah, <laughs> Di- 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 DiCaprio's connected. Uh, but uh, so he's been wanting to work with him. And, you know, Tarantino had a unique relationship with Calvin Candy. This was the first character that he's written of all his villains that he hated that he mm. truly despised. Even Landa from Bastards, uh, you know, he, he's a bad person, but, uh, you know, he got where he was coming from. He, you know, he, he liked the guy. Uh, but, not, you know, Calvin Candy is just completely a despicable uh, character. And when he first got DiCaprio to sign on, he, you know, he thought he was buffaloing him a little bit. You know, he was like, you know, this character isn't all that because uh, he's without ambiguity. Um, but Tarantino said that DiCaprio brought ambiguity. And it actually led to the, a quote, best acting I've ever seen moment. That was the best acting I've ever seen in my whole life. From Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he actually had a moment. He said in an interview was like that. It was with DiCaprio on this movie. And it was after a take. And it wasn't where he smashed his hand famously and cut it. I mean, that's famous. Everyone knows about that. But it was the scene where he brings out the skull, talking about old Ben, who used to shave his father on the porch. And how he explained it, he in a, in a way, he was able to humanize Calvin in that scene. And Tarantino just complimented him in front of the whole crew. And he was like, fuck, man, that was, that was amazing. Hmm. And so uh, DiCaprio, you know, for a guy that's always the heroic lead, 
you know, this is the first villain he had played since the man in the iron mask in 1998. So for, and he wasn't a huge star then. So for a lot of us, this was the first time we had seen him play this, anything close to this type of character. That's the thing is that, um, you hate him, but, uh, there's that, there's that charisma there. It's tough to, tough to, um, it's tough to hate him even early on, but you know, you eventually do really despise him, especially by the end of the film. But, Mm -hmm. uh, it was great seeing DiCaprio in this type of role, as I recall, because up to that point he had been, he had not played this type of character. And, and so I, even I read some like reviews from 2012 and they called that out the, 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 you know, the, the, uh, the critic, uh, talking about, you know, that it was refreshing to see that, that, that type of mischievous by a, by DiCaprio on screen, which you hadn't seen in the past, which now it doesn't, you know, it's not un- uncommon. You see him, you have Calvin Candy, you've seen him as Rick Dalton. Uh, so it, he's, he, he's known to be able to do that, but uh, this was the first foray into that for DiCaprio. Yeah, and it's, again, odd that he didn't get nominated for this. You could argue both him and Jamie should have been. And when Tarantino first met DiCaprio, he wasn't sure that he was right for it. I mean, Candy in the original script was much older. So he thought about it and then was like, well, with Leo, it can be like the boy king, the 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 uh, the boy emperor, King Louis the Fourteenth, the Caligula. So uh, he ended up adjusting the character for Leo, and and it was a great fit. Yeah, because even though he's in charge, there's that kind of immaturity there. You know, he just was he given everything on a silver spoon. Yeah, I can see that. Moving on to two-time Oscar winner Christoph Waltz, who won an Oscar for this part, Best Supporting Actor, as Dr. King Schultz, the, uh, an ally to the hero. Uh, almost a co-lead, arguably, um, and it's a second movie with Tarantino. Uh, Tarantino, when he was writing this, couldn't imagine not doing his next film with uh, Waltz after Bastards. And when he started writing Django, he was on the first scene because Tarantino writes linear. He always starts at the beginning. Uh, but uh, he was writing the first scene, and next thing he knows, there's a German character walking around. Mm-hmm. So uh, <laughs> he, he had to offer it to Waltz, and Waltz agreed on uh, playing the part on the condition that uh, Dr. King Schultz would be pure good. He would never commit an evil act. Hmm. Well, after playing Landa, you get that. Yeah, and it's just, it's just a, I think it speaks to his range as an actor that he could win for Lando. Hello, what have we here? Uh, excuse me, Hans Landa. Lando, my Star Wars fan coming out for Inglorious Bastards, same, playing someone, you know, the Calvin Candy evil esque character, and then the flip side, three years later, went for Django. So just to, but he not only is he playing two characters that are completely different, but he's doing it with the same superlative as an actor. He's doing it with the same type of line delivery and behavior. It's really fucking fantastic how he's able to accomplish that. And we know he'd go on to play Blowfield in the uh, the um, Daniel Craig Bond films. Right, right. Before we move on from Christoph Waltz, it's obvious. Got to go ahead and anoint him as the MVP. He gives the most valuable performance. It's the most well-written character in the script. He gets all the great lines. Uh, the character's the most interesting right from the opening scene when he's got the, uh, you know, Fritz and, and the, uh, the dentist uh, uh, stagecoach rolling in uh, there in the forest. But how poised and charismatic and gentleman he is, but at the same time, he's uh, a very believable and convincing at playing a capable bounty hunter in the West. Despite how gentleman and, and high class he is, maybe even high brow in some cases, he you never doubt his ability to take care of business as a bounty hunter. Well, he's he has uh, an education and an intelligence that is unmatched uh, by by any character uh, in, in the entire film. 
Uh, so I, I can see why you picked him as the MVP. I thought you were going to go with Django just because of his uh, evolution as a character and his arc and, and how he grows as a character, whereas, you know, not so much with Dr. Schultz. Uh, great character, great acting nonetheless, but uh, you know, an argument could be made for both. Well, <laughs> the thing is, is like Christoph Waltz and Samuel L. Jackson we, are, are like the QT all-stars. They sing his dialogue. So the way Waltz is just able to have a musical quality of the way he punches Tarantino's dialogue, the precision in which he executes Tarantino's script. I mean, I read the script, and then to see how he executes the part – he deserved all the praise and accolades that he got uh, for this movie, no question. All the actors did a great job. Uh, but talking about the other QT All-Star, Samuel L. Jackson, uh, Oscar nominee as Steven. Uh, this is his fifth collaboration with Quentin Tarantino. He would go on to have six uh, total, uh, Hateful Eight. He finally was the lead in a Tarantino movie. <laughs> so far, he's had uh, six. Could uh, Most likely will be, will be more. Yeah. Steven is a villain's ally. He's essentially the second in command. Uh, you can really see that in the library scene mm, when he's in yeah. how he talks to candy behind closed doors. He's, uh, yeah, he's QT's, poured himself a drink. Yeah. So. Yes. It's a, like when they're behind closed doors, it's almost like he's candy's uh, dad. Mm. Like it's a different relationship when they're uh, alone. Uh, he, he respects him and he listens to him and they're in this together. And it's, it's pr- pretty great. I mean, Steven gets away with stuff. No one else can in the house or uh, on uh, Candy's land. Uh, QT sent Samuel L. Jackson the script. He called and he's like, do you want to play Steven? And, and how do you feel about that? And Samuel L. Jackson's just like, so, you know, 15 years too late to play Django, but now you want me to be the most hated Negro in cinematic history. It's kind of like, yeah, that's the job. I'm like, okay, I'm down with that. It seems like Samuel Jackson is like he if he gets a call from QT, he's just up for for anything. He respects him so much as a filmmaker. Tarantino respects him so much as an actor that they are just it's a perfect match and it just, you know, without even hearing the explanation, it's probably hey, I'm in, you know, from from the get. Yeah. Uh, they did seven or eight makeup tests before they finalized his look in the film. They came up with his age and all that. And when people on set were just like, what the fuck? And even Walton Goggins talked about when he saw him, he didn't recognize him. He, it was Samuel Jackson's like, motherfucker, I'm similar. Oh, shit. Sam. <laughs> <laughs> QT's guest stars are the honorable mentions of the film real quick. Uh, Don Johnson is Big Daddy. Yes. My favorite character off the bench. I mean. He's so good. Uh, Walton Goggins is Billy Crash. Dennis Christopher is Mogi, the lawyer. Uh, James Ramar and James Russo is the Speck brothers. And uh, Ramar even plays Butch Poole, uh, one of Candy's uh, strongmen later in the film. Uh, Jonah Hill as Baghead number two. And he was originally cast as Scott Harmony. And when I read the script, it's very much like a novel. A lot of scenes were cut from the film. You don't They didn't film them. It's... Dude, the script is, there's a lot of stuff that cut out. It's a lot more brutal. Uh, But one of the characters, Scott Harmony, one of the most interesting parts of the script, and maybe that's because they didn't film it, it's like a a, a really long chapter, is the story of Scott Harmony. And I would tell people, read this, because I read it, and it's the story of how Scott Harmony buys Broomhilda, and then she ultimately falls in the hands of Calvin Candy. And the story of how that unfolds and how you learn about Calvin Candy, because it's his introduction in the script. So you really learn about the character I, it stayed with me for days. I it, It's like a good book. So I, I kind of hate they didn't have the Scott Harmony stuff in the movie. <laughs> it's such a good excerpt from the script that didn't make the final cut of the film that I, I know we want to, it may seem out of uh, sorts for the stars of the picture se- segment, but 
give a quick uh, cliff note version of that scene more because I remember you told me about it uh, uh, about a week ago, and I was just like, "Oh man, I want to see this on film." It's so great. I could picture it in my mind just while you, you were you were telling it. So just give a, a quick quick explanation of the scene. What happens? Well, uh, Broomhilda is on at the slave auction, and they've got her on stage, and it's pretty brutal. I mean, they strip her uh, to people can see. Uh, you know, her and if they want to buy her. And uh, it's pretty truthful to the time, no doubt. Uh, when you're reading it, I mean, you can just see the amount of research that went into the script. And um, uh, she, I, a lot of people are eyeballing Hildy because she's beautiful. And she I makes eye contact with uh, Scott Harmony, a young boy, uh, uh, an, uh, an, over, an overweight boy in the audience with his mom. And she continues to make eye contact because she knows he's her best option, more or less. She kind of comes to that determination when she sees the other people that are bidding on her. And she continues to make eye contact with him. And Scott Harmony pushes his mom. It's this pretty, pretty well written uh, to, to buy Hildy. And, and he does. And they have a nice relationship. And, you know, Harmony's mom pulls Hildy aside and is like, look, this is my son. He's not much of a man. You need to take care of him, be sweet to him, love him, and you'll be, live a good, comfortable life. And so that's what happens for an extended time. You know, they're together and she takes care of them and, uh, and they have a nice life together. And so one night, Scott takes her out on the town and they go to the Cleopatra Club. This is owned by Calvin Candy. And they're having a nice night and they have their own table and Calvin is eyeballing Hildy. Has been eyeballing her since they kind of came in the club. So right, right when she gets in there, he's eyeballing her, yeah. And she gets a really bad feeling. And uh, Harmony is, Scott Harmony is just oblivious. He has no idea. He's happy to be there, having a great time, has a beautiful woman on his arm. And Calvin comes over and introduces himself, starts showing him special attention. Harmony loves the attention. And again, is oblivious to some of the, you know, the intentions that Hildy is picking up on from Calvin, which are not good. Calvin invites them over to his table. Uh, They sit down uh, and they start having drinks and start talking and, start playing cards and Hildy's pissed off. She's like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to bed. Fuck this. So she goes to, across the street back to the hotel. She goes up to the hotel room. She goes to bed. Scott continues to carry on with Calvin. He's having a great time. Thinks nothing of it. They start playing cards and they get deep, deep into the game. Next thing you know, they got a big pot in the middle and Calvin keeps pushing Scott to gamble more and more and more. And eventually Scott's like, look, I don't have any money. And he's like, well, you have to gamble uh, more. You need to put, here, I got a, a bill of sale. And he writes Sheba's name on it. He's willing to sell Sheba. And he's like, you need to write Broomhilda's name on there. And he's like, I can't sell Broomhilda in here. I can't get rid of her. And he's like, no, 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 you need to put her in the pot and match my bet. He's like, I can't do that. He goes, you need to be a man and, and, and match your bet that we have. And Calvin's just kind of pressuring him, you know, and taking advantage just of feeding Scott's- on the naivete of young Scott. Exactly. And it's very well fleshed out, probably better than I'm describing. I'm probably not doing it justice. It, no, you're but- doing it justice. I, I really could imagine it in my mind. See, I could see it on the screen. even. And though- it's so great. And uh, eventually uh, they throw down the cards and Calvin wins and, and Scott Harmony calls him uh, a cheat. Calvin's like, you're calling me a cheat in my hotel. I'm challenging you to a duel. And Scott's like, whoa, whoa, I don't, I don't want to go to a duel. I just want to go home with, you know, my, my girl. And he's like, that's not going to happen. He goes, you either give me Broomhilda and you can leave or you challenge me to a duel right now if you want to keep her. And Scott Harmony ultimately decides that he can't go home without Broomhilda. So Calvin Candy shoots him dead. Doesn't even duel him, just shoots him, shoots him dead. Yeah. And what's most horrifying after that is it cuts to the hotel and 
Calvin Candy and his men come into the hotel. They barge into the room, rip off the sheets. Broomhilda's naked, rip her out of bed. She starts running out. They're chasing her outside the hotel and through the town. And it's muddy. You know, Chickasaw County, you can see in the film how muddy it is. She falls in the mud, and she looks up, and Calvin Candy's standing there and says, Welcome to Candyland. And that's the end of the part of the script. I really wish they would have left that in the film. Uh, it would have been so great to see that. Uh, part of the reason maybe they didn't is, again, you never know with Tarantino. It seems like he writes a lot to support the character's background, the story that he never intends to show on the the screen, just so that he can give the, the world more life that he's trying to bring uh, to the cinema. Uh, but Jonah Hill was originally cast for Scott Harmony, did end up playing Baghead number two uh, for the KKK uh, scene. Sasha Baron Cohen was also cast as Scotty Harmony. Uh, both left for scheduling issues. And then, of course, you know, like you said, those scenes were cut. I'm not sure if they were even ever filmed. Uh, but no, they, they weren't. Were they were not. They okay. were scrapped, yeah. Another character that ended up not making it off the cutting room floor, got a bit further along, uh, was uh, Ace Woody. Uh, which is going to be Candy's right hand man, uh, more of like the his own Mandingo, uh, his own Mandingo expert. Uh, the, Kevin Costner was originally going to be in the role, left for scheduling issues. Uh, Kurt Russell was actually cast as the character, uh, but that that had, there was either scheduling issues or some falling out for that. So they just said forget Ace Woody, and that character's lines were merged with Billy Crash, mm. who's played by Walt Goggins. Kind of more or less became a composite character. Correct. Which is common with uh, with books and screenwriting. You take characters and put them together. It happens all the time. Yeah. yeah. All right. Stats and accolades of Django Unchained. Uh, release date, Christmas Day 2012. We were there. We went with the family. It was kind of uncomfortable. But hey, we you and I enjoyed the heck out of the movie. Yeah, we loved it. Uh, on a budget of $100 million, uh, opening weekend, it was, it was a little weird as Christmas movies are. Christmas was on a Tuesday that year. Um, so if you look at that weekend that ended the Tuesday, it was $15 million. But it, if you were to account accrue for the first full weekend it had, it's actually $77.8 million uh, by the end of um, the, that first full weekend, which was uh, December 31st. Uh, and then domestically, it would go on to pull in 162.8 million, and worldwide 425.3 million. And it finished number 16 in the box office rankings that year. And this film is Quentin Tarantino's highest-grossing movie ever to this day. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is second. I believe Bastards is third. And again, I think 16 is again because it came at the end of the year. So you, you do have to take that with a grain of salt there. Yeah, home media for Django, DVD, digital, and Blu-ray release was April 16th, 2013. So barely, what, four months? Uh, and they had $62 million in DVD sales. Hey, yeah, this is where you were starting to see the turn of films, maybe a couple years prior to this, where it'd be in the theaters and within four months or so. It's less now, but even within within a few months, you could you could get it on Blu-ray, digital, whatnot. So. Much quicker turnaround, yeah. Running time of two hours and 45 minutes. Doesn't feel like it. The movie just, there's parts that just fly by. It's so many great scenes cut together that, you know, the a few nights ago, my wife and I sat down to watch, and it was kind of late when we got to start, and I was like, ah, you know, I'll, I'll watch like half of it here. I'll treat it like 2001 A Space Odyssey. I'll have like a little intermission, and I'll watch the second half of the next night. And we stayed up till like 1 a.m., past 1 a.m. watching the film because you just, don't feel like it's that long 
uh, because it just it captivates you. It moves. The pacing is great. And you just want to see these little moments maybe you've forgotten about that you want to see play out again. Rating R, mostly because of the violence uh, and the profanity, a body count of 64. Wow. Uh, pretty gore and severe, a lot of the violence, but the initial cuts were worse. Uh, but QT, when he screened it with initial audiences, he sensed that he was traumatizing the audience, and he ended up cutting uh, down a lot of the scenes uh, that, that had violence in them. I mean, the ones, the, the deaths that they left in are plenty violent. I mean, it, it's almost like a a comical level of gory with some of the gunshot wounds. I mean, it's just like, uh, he's you know. brilliant how he does that. He makes you laugh at things. You probably shouldn't like the one guy who's stuck laying in the hallway and he keeps getting caught in the crossfire the knee, yeah, and yeah. we're laughing at him because we have no sympathy for this asshole because he works at the plantation. So we're enjoying this guy's pain. It's, it's, it's it just brilliant writing, uh, brilliant filmmaking profanity in the film, slightly over 20 F bombs. Fuck you. And 110 uses of the N-word, the most ever in cinema history, and that wasn't without controversy. Scores of the film, Rotten Tomatoes, 87%, Cinema Score A-, IMDb, 8.4 out of 10, and it ranks 59th out of the top 250 movies of all time, a Metacritic score of 81 out of 100. And speaking of the critics, Roger Ebert gave it 4 out of 4 stars, it didn't make his top 10 list, not because he said it wouldn't, because he was injured and his viewing of it was delayed. So he did say mm. if he, it would have made his top 10 if he would have seen it in time. And the film made over 30 critics' top 10 lists for the year. So uh, a rip-roaring success both at the box office and with critics. Most likely going to see that with, <laughs> with any Tarantino film. It's going to be uh, highly regarded by critics. Other than uh, Death Proof, but that's the I uh, almost forgot it. Yeah, speaking of the top 10, the most notable one it made was AFI's top 10 movies of 2012 list. That's high praise. That's high praise. Awards of the film, it won two Oscars on five nominations. Uh, Christoph Waltz for Best Supporting Actor, his second win in the category, and it's the longest running screen time for a Best Supporting Actor winner ever, over like an hour and six minutes. I guess it would be second probably to Heath Ledger and Jane and the in the, the Dark Knight. Yeah. I'm not sure about that. I, I will never understand that category is how an actor like Heath Ledger or Christoph yeah. Waltz can take up so much screen time and still be a supporting actor. Yeah, well, I mean, we can't weigh in on the Academy politics and how they determine those things, but uh, yeah, because there's no rhyme or reason to it. Uh, the, the other win was uh, Tarantino for original screenplay. His also his second win in the category. And the most ever in the category for best original screenplay is Woody Allen with three wins. So I really mm. thought Tarantino might have tied him with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And in my humble opinion, and I'm probably a little biased here, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You're very biased. Tarant- yeah, shut the fuck up. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood should have been Tarantino's coronation. As much as I love Parasite, it is an injustice he hasn't won best director. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it was his time. He deserved it. I mean, there's been so many times he's been shortchanged. He wasn't nominated for Kill Bill, Volume 1. He should have been, especially when you look at the category that year. Anyway, so, but, you know, that looks to be the Academy's way. Uh, Hitchcock, Kubrick, uh, Tarantino so far, some of the most important and greatest filmmakers don't win a Best Directing Oscar. It's not about winning or losing. It's about passion. And it's about career. I think just the longevity of greatness is, you know, but he's had a great career, but he just, if he, he's very deserving is, is my opinion. And I, he, he is deserving a best picture. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I would have loved to have seen the best picture, best director, best screenplay all in one year. That's the, you know, where he's got, he's clutching all three. 
Uh, that's tough to do. Um, but Tarantino would deserve it if anybody. Um, music of the Year, actually a double crown for Grammy Record of the Year mm. and the Billboard Hot 100 for year ending 2012. Uh, somebody that I used to know by uh, Gautier, an artist that we all used to know, and really didn't do anything after that. But it was a cool video, a cool song, and um, and definitely the buzz of that year. Uh, movies of 2012, number one at the box office, The Avengers, which we covered in Season 2, Episode 3 uh, of the Marvel Universe. Uh, number two was Skyfall of the James Bond universe. And mm. number three was the Dark Knight Rises of the Batman film universe. Wow, man. This is our second movie uh, that we've covered in 2012. And it, we, we didn't do the uh, Batman film of all things. Man, well, what, you're... well we got to do Batman Begins before you do Dark Knight Rises. So that, that, that's, that's fair. I don't know if we'll ever do Rises. We're never doing Dark Knight Rises. Come on. Best Picture Oscar winner, Argo. And that year was uh, a career year for Brian Cranston in 2012. He was in the best play at the Tonys. He was in the best movie at the Oscars, Argo. And he was, the, of course, the lead at the best series at the Emmys in Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad, yeah. Wow. Man, at the peak. Worst Picture Razzie winner, Jack and Jill, courtesy of Adam Sandler and Columbia Pictures. <laughs> Piece of trash. Oh, my God. It made me so bad. <laughs> I didn't see it. TV of the Year, Nielsen, scripted top-rated shows, NCIS, Big Bang Theory, Person of Interest, and Two and a Half Men. Best Comedy Series Emmy winner, Modern Family, it's fourth straight out of five. And Best Drama Series Emmy winner, Breaking Bad, it's first of a two-peat. And Movie Ticket Prices of the Year, $8.20. So even, what, eight years later, they've still went up a couple bucks. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, they just, well pretty cheap now i just watch everything from my home and get new movies for 19.99 the day they come out and gas prices were three dollars and 91 cents seems like pretty high yeah especially now yeah i mean seeing it kind of come down the other way most of the time we talk about a film it's like an average price of gas was 72 cents a gallon Uh, (laughs) Uh, events of the year michael phelps dominates summer olympics in london and becomes the most decorated olympian ever the space shuttle Endeavor has its final flight. NASA retires it, and Barack Obama is reelected as president. All right, let's talk about our best scenes and lines from Django and Shane. An incredibly quotable movie, but also one that has just back-to-back great scenes. Yeah. Uh, so it's tough to pick our runners. I'm sure it was tough for you. It's tough for me to pick a runner-up and winner. I had a lot of honorable mentions. Let's start with your runner-up for best scene, Warren. Mm. I, I just want to say, before we get into my, my runner-up best scene, uh, that Tarantino, the way that he shoots uh, his films, he doesn't do what everybody does, which is he doesn't use multiple cameras when he shoots his scenes. He uses one camera, and he composes every shot you see in the film. And so uh, the level of artistry and the and, and the level of care that he takes with each frame in the film uh, it shows uh, uh, when you watch the movie and he doesn't use music to pace his scenes like a lot of filmmakers do either so one of the the many things that separates Tarantino from a lot of filmmakers Uh, but my runner-up best scene and it's when the uh, it's after Schultz shoots the sheriff and the marshal surround the saloon Marshal Tatum May I address you and your deputies and apparently the entire town of Daughtry as to the incident that just occurred? Go on. 
My name is Dr. King Schultz. Like yourself, Marshal, I'm a servant of the court. The man lying dead in the dirt, who the good people of Daughtry saw fit to elect as their sheriff, who went by the name of Bill Sharp, is actually a wanted outlaw by the name of Willard Peck, with a price on his head of $200. Now, that's $200 dead or alive. The hell you say? I'm aware this is probably disconcerting news. But I'm willing to wager this man was elected sheriff sometime in the past two years. I know this because three years ago, he was rustling cattle from the B.C. Corrigan Cattle Company of Lubbock, Texas. Now, this is a warrant made out by Circuit Court Judge Henry Allen Laudermilk of Austin, Texas. You're encouraged to wire him. He'll back up who I am and who your dear departed sheriff was. In other words, Marshal, you owe me $200. And if you haven't seen the movie in a while, you'll forget the outcome of that scene. You'll be like, how the hell does he get out of this again? And the way that he gives that monologue and then just finishes it where he's like, yeah, you owe me money. <laughs> it's so great. What a boss. I mean, just great. I mean, I just, I, I when I watched the film, it had been a, a, you know, a few years since I'd seen it. And I, was th I thought to myself, I was like, how does he get out of this scene? Uh, so it was, it was very enjoyable to watch. Love that you picked that as a, as a runner-up. I did have that uh, as an honorable mention, of course. My runner-up is when you first are introduced to Dr. King Schultz, where he rides up on the Speck Brothers, and you know he's just got that the, the, the dentist tooth rocking back and forth, and you really don't know what to expect at first. But again, he approaches a situation where he is very much the underdog, the the People immediately identify him as a threat. Both brothers do, but he is able to turn the situation around in his favor. Uh, and just just the way he carries himself, how he gets Django, and even, and even how he leaves the scene and that monologue and the way that he does it uh, and, and how he presents it to the, uh, the, other, the other slaves there is just, it, it's a perfect introduction to that character. Now, as to you poor devils... So as I see it, when it comes to the subject of what to do next, you gentlemen have two choices. One, once I'm gone, you could lift that beast off the remaining speck, then carry him to the nearest town, which would be at least 37 miles back the way you came. Or two, you could unshackle yourselves, take that rifle, put a bullet in his head, bury the two of them deep, and then make your way to a more enlightened area of this country. Choice is yours. Oh, and on the off chance there are any astronomy aficionados amongst you, the North Star is that one. Ta-da. It's one of the scenes that won in the Oscar, no doubt. Any scene could be picked for Dr. King Schultz as, as a great, great one, but that, 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 that was my tops uh, for runner-up. Uh, and then for your... Winner, what was your best scene? My winner best scene, and there's so many good scenes. We're not going to be able to mention them all, and it was really hard to narrow this down. But I kind of, or it was hard to narrow down our scenes, but I kind of knew what my winner was before I even started. It's the backhead scene. The battle without the eye. That was an honorable mention, Mike. We ready or what? Oh, uh, hold on. I'm fucking with my whole. Oh. Oh, shit. 
Uh, I just made it worse. Who made this goddamn shit? Willard's wife. You make your own goddamn match. Look, nobody's saying they don't appreciate what Jenny did. Well, if all I had to do was cut a hole in a bag, I could have cut it better than this. What about yeah. you, Robert? Can you see? Not too good. I mean, if I don't move my head, I can see you pretty good, more or less. But when I start riding, the bag's moving all over, and I, I'm riding blind. I just made mine worse. Anybody bring any extra bags? No, nobody brought an extra bag. I'm just asking. Do we have to wear them when we ride? Oh, well, shit fire! If you don't wear them as you ride up, that just defeats the purpose. Well, I can't see in this fucking thing. I can't breathe in this fucking thing, and I can't ride in this fucking thing. Well, fuck all y'all. I'm going home. Now, I watched my wife work all day getting 30 bags together for you ungrateful sons of bitches, and all I can hear is criticize, criticize, criticize. So now on, don't ask me your mind for nothing. <laughs> I love... I mean, just the ineptitude of these chuckle fucks. I mean, that is just a great portrayal of just the idiocy that goes along with, with you know, that, that group of individuals, but it's just uh, portrayed in a comical way, and I'm glad that they, they got theirs. But that's a that's an awesome choice for winter. Just great bonding moment for Schultz and Django as well, and you mm-hmm. get to see him, you know, his... his it, when, he, when he shoots Big Daddy and him at the end of that, and he elevates himself as... Uh, as someone that is a very talented bounty hunter, very talented Well, marksman. they had come to their, Django and Schultz had come to their agreement uh, in the saloon after he shot the sheriff waiting on the marshal, but that agreement was just to get the Brittle Brothers, and at that point, business was done. After he shot Big Daddy, Schultz saw a talent. He's like, you know what, maybe I should partner with this guy for the winter. We could have a successful, uh, profitable uh, uh, run together. Yeah. My winner for best scene is the return of Django uh, to, to uh, Calvin Candy's uh, Candyland mm. at the end of the film when, uh, you know, the first time when he gets in that shootout, even though he's very capable uh, and can defend himself, he's kind of, he's thrown off balance given the circumstances that, that Dr. Schultz puts him in and having to escape and not having the equipment. Uh, but when he comes back and uh, he is already set up in the house when the funeral party for Calvin Candy returns and he just, the confidence that he carries just him, you know, <laughs> he, the way he, he tells uh, one of the, 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 the slaves to tell, say goodbye to Miss Laura. Uh, Cole, before you go, will you tell Miss Laura goodbye? D- do what now? I said, tell Miss Laura goodbye. Bye Miss Laura. And just like, the comic away he shoots her, and she just like she's like almost like on a rope and pulley, and just gets yanked back through the room. Uh, but my favorite part of that scene is when he has the conversation with Stephen. Seventy-six years, Stephen. How many niggas you think you see come and go? Huh? Seven thousand, eight thousand, nine thousand, nine thousand nine hundred ninety-nine. Every single word that came out of Calvin Candy's mouth was nothing but horseshit. But he was right about one thing. I am that one nigga in 10,000. And what's great, though, is the way that it ends, and he's just walking away. You hear Stephen uh, yell out. Django! You open it, son of a 
and then the house blows up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, uh, I mean, just, and then they get away, and it just, it's a great ending to the film. Uh, far and away, my winner. No. That kind of leads me to an honorable mention is when he makes the deal with the Australians, and it's when he blows up uh, Tarantino, actually, with dynamite after he shoots the other two guys. And this, the, the music kicks in, there's the smoke, and the other slaves see Django come out of the smoke and kind of take charge of the situation. Oh, such a like, badass yeah. shot. Yeah, he's like pouring the water on his face, and uh, he's grabbing whatever weapons and materials he can. He takes the the gear off one of the horses uh, and uh, and just rides it with no saddle. It's fucking badass. Yeah, just that, that that is an honorable mention as well. Again, I got a lot of them. Uh, we all of them so far that you've that you've mentioned have, have, have been honorable mentions. But um, just yeah, his control over that scene, how he turns it to his advantage, uh, being captured. To I mean, you can see that he has taken all the tools of what he's learned up to that point to turn the situation into his favor. And as soon as he gets the gun, boom, and he just he he is dry, rides with a purpose. I mean, he. Great choice uh, as an honorable mention. Um, I had that, and then uh, actually the um, one one that I almost had as my runner-up was when Django does uh, encounter the Brittle Brothers, uh, and he marches up to them in his nice blue suit <laughs> uh, <laughs> as the valet, uh, but uh, and, and he approaches them and, and takes out the, the first two. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's so great. I love that when he like uh, takes the whip from him, and then the one guy fumbles his his gun <laughs> after he shoots <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the one brittle brother. And in the script, he actually shoots himself in the foot, but they didn't have wow. that happen in the movie. Probably a little too on the nose, maybe for the film. It was awesome to to see that, and just you know, he gets that that taste of revenge that is far and away due to him. Um, but the great thing about that is, though, is that he doesn't really have the, the, the authority as a bounty hunter to do that. But, you know, King covers for him anyway, and they get out of it. This is my deputy, uh, Django Freeman. <laughs> 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 but just like as soon as they like at the end of that, the, the, the you know, Big Daddy and his crew ride up. and <laughs> King just like throws the gun down and puts his hands up in the air. It's just, almost in a comical way. But, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it, that's a, and, and it's a cool And he's able um, at one of the master diffusers. He's uh, just so he's able to defuse an angry mob twice in like the first 45 minutes of the movie. And yeah. He's got that little speech memorized of the circuit court judge that signed exactly. it and everything. He even reiterates and uh, the penalty for hanging a man of the court, uh, carrying out his duties, you get hung by the neck until you're dead. Uh, well, an honorable mention, we have to mention a shot, which you kind of said earlier with the Hong Kong zoom in. Uh, and he's, he even does it with uh, the 14th Fist of McCluskey and Once Upon a Time. He does it at least five times in this movie, but he's used it. He uses it uh, th- throughout a, a handful of his, uh, of his films. Uh, but th- in this one, the most, no question. And also the other shot is the blood across the cotton after he shoots one of the uh, Brittle Brothers. I love yes. that shot. It's really great. That is really cool, uh, yeah. I got to give an audible mention to the flashbacks, and it's where the Schaefer or Brittle brothers, uh, it, it, um, the way that Tarantino and Robert Richardson, they kind of bleach the film, and it cuts to the dead chicken with fly. It's just the way they create that time and feel uh, with the music uh, playing and, and the scenes cut together. It, it's a very effective flashback. It's really short, but you don't even know who the Brittle brothers are, and within 15 seconds of seeing that guy in the field and seeing that cut flashback, you hate him. I did forget one. It's, and it's really not a, it's more of like a, of course it's a musical scene, but there's a, the, the, this has got to be one of the most beautifully shot 
Tarantino films, especially some of the scenery that it shows. There's one in particular where it's got music playing under while you watch uh, Django and Schultz riding towards the mountains. What's well, the riding like, montage where they come out of the barn doors together? and it, Yeah, uh, and yeah. It's, it's just like, I watched that. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. When Django gets his horse, he gets the new saddle, throws it up there, and it shows him riding off. And it just like, to me, it's like, man, this is what, I want to go play Red Dead Redemption with Warren and ride through Valentine, because that's what it felt like. It's yeah, such it's great. Awesome, oh, it's so good, yeah. It's so good. And it has a, a classical quality to it and, and, and a montage done at a very high level. Uh, other honorable mentions is um, Django's training montage where we see him kind of figure out how to be accurate with the snowman and then it cuts with him training and shows him getting better and better and more accurate and then eventually cuts to him and Schultz executing bounties and being quite successful. And the, the song starts to somewhat, or the sequence starts to somewhat end when uh, after they they kill a, a bandit of guys and uh, of bounties, and Schultz lifts his hat and like the brass falls off, <laughs> just like <laughs> yeah. oh, another day at the office. <laughs> yep, yeah, that's good. I like that. Yeah. And my last honorable mention is when they arrive at Candyland. It's the first time we see Candyland. It kind of sets the stage of where the second act of the film is going. Uh, well, ultimately the third act and the, the ending of the film, but we see all the characters uh, at Candyland. Most importantly, we see Steven for the first time, and it's very classically set up with a lot of the close-up shots of the faces. It has almost like a Sergio Leone-type feel, uh, how they cut between Steven's face and Django's and, and Schultz's and, and Candy's. It's, it's, I love that sequence. Yeah, I do love that scene. Um, I actually did have one last honorable mention. Again, so many great scenes in the film. I know, we're going over here. Uh, we're going way over, but yeah. Um, it's when uh, they're sniping and Schultz teaches Django a lesson because he didn't want to shoot the guy in front of his son. Understandable, but then he shows him the flyer, what he's known for, and he's, you know, it teaches him this very important lesson and tells him, tells him to keep that flyer as a memento for the lesson he's learned. It ends up saving his life later saves on his in ass. the film, yeah, uh, with the LaQuint Dickey gang um, before he, you know in, in the third act. Uh, but just that lesson that he does learn there, I, and, that, and again another bonding moment with Schultz and and, and great writing how Tarantino ties that element back in uh, in at the end of the film and it plays such which a yeah part. I'm not going to nitpick I'm not going to great be, you know, fucking filmmaking it, it is but at the same time though just like. They would have emptied his pockets. He wouldn't have had shit in his pockets. Moving so, yeah. Uh, mm. Assuming that he, they, they didn't think he was going to get his clothes back, though. I mean, you know, it's, it's not like they gave him back to him. He, he went back in the barn. He paid his respects to Schultz's corpse. He took uh, uh, her papers and he got his clothes back. Yeah. Okay. Now to shift to our best lines from the film again. Uh, a lot to, to mention. Too many dimensions. Highly quotable film. I'll start with my runner-up, and uh, it's. It's kind of a meme, I guess, now, but it's uh, like many DiCaprio, uh, uh, Calvin Candy line scenes from uh, this film. But it is uh, his line where he says, Gentlemen, you have my curiosity, but now you have my attention. (laughs) I had that as an honorable mention. And even the follow-up with Jamie Foxx is, I'm curious what makes you so curious. Mm. Yeah. Again, a lot of great dialogue by Tarantino, yeah. My runner-up is, it's more of an exchange. It's uh, after Big Daddy more or less tells Schultz and Django to fuck off, and, and, and Schultz goes, Mr. Bennett, if you are the businessman I've been led to believe you to be, I have 
5,000 things I might say that could change your mind. <laughs> well, come on inside and get yourself something cool to drink. <laughs> Demeanor <laughs> completely changes. It's a, oh, yeah, it's a great, great thing. Uh, it's exchange. so good. Yeah. All right. Uh, and then what was your winner? Uh, my winner... And it's uh, it, it comes from my favorite scene, the backhead scene. But more specifically, it's Robert, who is the line delivery by QT is just punch perfect. Is when he goes. I think we all think the bag was a nice idea. Yeah, mm-hmm. but not pointing the fingers. They could have been done better. So how about no bags this time? But next time we do the bags right. And then we go full regalia. <laughs> man, you love that scene. That's man. That's so, it's so great. It's 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 great. Yeah, because how it cuts back to it while and Tarantino kind of musically it. delivers his own dialogue, and that's why I love it. That line so mm, much. That's good. Um, my f- best line uh, comes from uh, honorable mention where he encounters the Brittle Brothers. And says the line back to uh, one of the brothers. I like the way you die, boy. I had that as an honorable mention. Yeah, well, of course you did. Um, but just that, it just you can t- you can you can get the sense that he was waiting to use that whenever he saw them again. Like he had been planning that ever since he heard the the Brill brother say it to him. That he got to that moment to use it just to cap the sweet cherry on top to that revenge that mm. you've got. Yeah, great choice. I almost picked it as my winner before deciding on Robert's line in the backhead scene. Yeah, so um, a few honorable mentions. One that was, again, very close to being a runner-up for me was when uh, the near the end of the film, when or near the end, I guess, the second act, when Schultz explains uh, Alexander Dumas to Calvin Candy. If Alexandre Dumas had been there today, I wonder what he would have made of it. You doubt he'd approve, huh? Yes, his approval would be a dubious proposition at best. Soft-hearted Frenchie. Alexandre Dumas is black. Candy, being the Francophile, would love Alexander Dumas and would be stupid enough and ignorant enough to not know that he was a black man and that this person that he has idolized, it just it had to be a gut check to everything that Candy held dear uh, mm-hmm. to being in love with the French culture. Uh, so that was that's just a great moment, just kind of just a just an F you uh, from Yeah, from Dr. after Schultz. Candy's won, it's a little it's a it's a punch in the gut. It's a jab. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah I had I love it. Um, uh, then I had one I expected to be your winner, the D J A N G O. The D is silent. I know. Oh, no. Uh, I, I, I didn't even have that as an honorable mention. That speaks to how many great lines are in the film. You can't list them all. I had to eliminate it. I, I did think of it, but I just it didn't make the list. An Easter egg for that. Um, the character that says that to him, that he was in the Mandingo fight with Calvin Candy, but then he puts on an outfit. It's like almost like a poncho and a hat. Almost looks out of place. Uh, that was Franco Nero, the actor. He played Django. From Django in 1966. In Corbucci's. Uh, that's yeah. correct. Yeah. So it was a little, 
Uh, so he kind of, there's that moment, that kind of meta moment of recognition where he's like, yes, I know that the D is silent. Uh, and then he moves on. But this is a nice nod to that, the, the original film. Honorable mention I had is when Bettina says to Django, So you really free? Yes, I was free. You mean you want to dress like that? <laughs> I knew that, yeah, that was going to have a, an appearance for, for, for best lines. I mean, yeah, that's, that's, that's a good one. And another honorable, it's more of an exchange between Django and Steven is when Steven goes, I count six shots, nigga. I count two guns, nigga. That's great. Oh, it's so good. Yes. Because he has planned and thought of everything for that uh, finale. Uh, Yeah, that's good. And my last honorable mention is Quentin Tarantino's favorite line from the film. Oh, and on the off chance there are any astronomy aficionados amongst you, the North Star is that one. And he knew he had to finish the script after he uh, wrote that line. (laughs) It was the last line in the first scene. Yeah, I mean, that was the the capping off to my uh, runner-up scene. Yeah, that the end of that kind of little monologue there. That that's really really good. I love it. Oh, it's so good. Um, did have a couple other honorable mentions. Sorry. Kill white folks and they pay you for it. What's not to like? Django just is you know he's he's hooked in. He has a reason to to, to do the bounty hunting. It gives him an, a vehicle to carry out his revenge legally. Uh, so that that was good. And then loved. Um, when uh, last one here is when uh, Broomhilda sees Django for the first time again at Calvin Candy's ranch. He opens the door just like a badass. Hey, little troublemaker. And she just passes out. It's great. And then Schultz's line is like, you silver tongued devil, you. <laughs> it's a great <laughs> moment, yeah. Moving on to Judge Bob's recasting court, where Warren and I recast the film with today's stars. All rise for the Honorable Judge Bob, presiding. Gentlemen, you may be seated. Recasting court is now in session. Counselors, I look forward to hearing your arguments. Let's get right into it. First on the docket today, we're going to hear an argument for Stephen. We're going to hear an argument between Danny Glover versus Forrest Whitaker. Counselors, let's hear the argument for Danny Glover to start things off. Uh, Mr. T- I'm getting too old for this shit. Are you kidding me? I, I mean, granted... Samuel Jackson is, uh, it was almost impossible to recast this role, but if you're going to go with somebody, you got to do somebody that can, I don't know, th- to me, the character of Steven definitely has two sides. The mask that he wears in front of Calvin Candy, uh, the kind of the humorous almost joke uh, that just everybody kind of laughs at in a good, hu- in a good humored way, but you know, the, he, he's also kind of part of the joke and, and drives that. I think of the scene when he comes out and is talking to Calvin Candy uh, when Django and Schultz and the caravan first arrive. But as far as someone who can have both sides of that, again, I'm getting too old for this shit, just nasty, just attitude. And one that the other uh, people in the house actually fear. Uh, if you can't get Samuel Jackson, Danny Glover's my next choice. And Warren, let's hear it for Forrest Whitaker. Forrest Whitaker, Oscar winning actor, a chameleon can literally slide into any costume and, and completely embody what the character needs to portray in the piece. Uh, stage actor, film actor, uh, even a body Steven. I, I, I just see him just falling right into this and uh, absolutely crushing it, having the level of intimidation that Steven has, but also I mean, more, more or less he's the second villain in the film. And Forrest Whitaker can play a really good, capable villain and someone who's in charge and who's running things under Calvin. Not a better fit out there. I, I did 
take, the, take into consideration Denzel Washington. Um, it's funny you I, say it because I also almost – Almost put Denzel into this role, but it just ultimately didn't feel right to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Forrest Whitaker is a, is a more natural fit. You almost feel Denzel; he would he would have to have a bigger part in the film. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this one. I think Forrest Whitaker was the right casting. Take this one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well done. All right. I mean, it's, well done. It's, all right. Sure. After uh, several pre-production meetings this week, I expect great things out of you, Warren. Hope you have your Brady hat on. Twelve time, we're going to find out on the next one. Broomhilda Von Shaft. Guys, come on. Two of the most beautiful women on the planet here. We're going to hear an argument between Janelle Monet and Zoe Kravitz. You can't go wrong either way. Convince me one or the other. Let's start with Zoe Kravitz. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think one of the... <laughs> One of the prerequisites for this character is beauty. I mean, Carrie Washington, of course, uh, just an absolute bombshell. Um, so with with Zoe Kravitz, though, and, and with Carrie Washington, that not only is there the beauty there, but there is also the history of pain that this character has gone through. And so that I think, you know, again, you, you look to the eyes for that type of role. And Zoe Kravitz, she has that depth of character to, to, to portray the Broomhilda von Shaft and what she's been through on the screen at the same time clearly has the, the, the looks that, that go along with that, that is required for, for, for Broomhilda. But this is someone that Django would channel his inner Siegfried and fight for. Warren, Janelle Monet. Janelle Monet, a supremely talented actress, absolutely gorgeous. And when you think of the character Hildy, I can't think of an actress that would more perfectly embody that perhaps than Carrie Washington. It's hard to argue with the original. It's difficult to envision anyone other than Carrie Washington playing this role. But if you had to do it, recast it to net today, Janelle Monet fits the role. It's like Cinderella's foot in the slipper. It's just perfect. I, lo- I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Janelle Monet. Uh, she's in her previous work or what she's done. I'd also considered Zendaya for the role, but those are both good choices, but, but, but you, you, no, Zoe Kravitz is, is the better. You need someone fit. a little longer in the tooth. I'm sorry. No, that's why I went with Zoe Kravitz. Yeah. That, that, I mean, that, that, that's why I did not go with Zendaya, but, uh, again, uh, Zoe Kravitz though, is just, I think just far and away a better choice for the Broomhilda character. Mm-mm. I mean, I love Zoe Kravitz, but, uh, it's just a case where both would be great, but Janelle Monet fits it. I think just a little bit better. I think we mentioned Zendaya more than ESPN mentions <laughs> LeBron James. <laughs> we, we, we don't recast her a lot, though. We it just speaks to her it, potential so. of, of you know. Well, I, she could literally step into any Five role. years like from the, now? Yeah, I amazing. could see Zendaya in the role. Sure. I had to go back and forth on it for a while. Um, I really loved both of them, but I'm going to give the nod to Janelle Monet. Wow, yes. I, I am shocked. I cannot believe that. Uh, yeah, oh it's God. perfect. Zoe Kravitz is far and away the better choice. <laughs> All right, um, we're going to get into uh, next character here. Calvin Candy. And, boys, we're headed to the Oscars. Christian Bale versus Joaquin Phoenix. Let me hear the argument for uh, Christian Bale to start things off. See, the problem is, is that... Even though this is random, you keep making me go first. So Warren is getting, the, the, you know, I'm getting set up. Um, but no, I, I mean, it, it, it doesn't really matter what order you go in with Christian Bale. Uh, you, 
you have to have a bona fide leading man to pull off this role in the way that DiCaprio and few other actors could. And Christian Bale is in that elite crowd that could do it uh, from just the, um, just the unawareness of how evil he is, the playfulness, but this, the, the, the inherent evil that is there because of who, who he is and how he was raised and the environment that he is in and created for himself to have someone that could, um, almost, you know, look at others' misfortunes as a joke, uh, and, but deliver the lines in a way where there's a charisma to it, but then also have the, the other side of the, the intensity of that dinner scene where he catches, uh, Schultz and Django in the act and, you know, tells them to keep their hands on the table. It's just, to have both sides of it, you need a true leading man, and that's Christian Bale. And I mean, I think when you look at the character and you think about Leonardo DiCaprio in it, probably a lot of questions is how is he going to step into this role? And I have similar questions about Joaquin Phoenix. So, Warren, go ahead and explain okay. the Joaquin uh, I, Phoenix yeah, cast. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, we got Batman versus Joker here. We're going to skip over that? Oh, Come my on. gosh. Uh, that's great. Yeah, like I, the, the greatest I didn't even think about that. portrayals of Batman and Joker, arguably, although my favorite Joker is Heath Ledger. Sorry, I love Joaquin Phoenix and, and, and Joker, but i got to still give it to Ledger. But I've had the pleasure as a young actor of standing in for both of these actors on a feature film set oh, wow. and seeing wow. them both work, Joaquin Phoenix and Christian Bale, and Vice and uh, – he won't get far on foot. Uh, the the Callahan movie Phoenix was in. Um, they changed the title like four times, so I don't know it exactly. But uh, the, the working title during production was something else. But Joaquin Phoenix, think about him in Gladiator, the Commodus character, okay? Like a boy petulant emperor, a whiny little bitch boy. He'd be perfect in this, maybe change it just a little bit, which fits the character. Uh, I actually read the script for Django, and the character's a little older, so I almost went Sean Penn, Russell Crowe, wanted to go a little older, but ultimately I wanted to meet in the middle of LD and, and the, how he was older in the scripts. So I think Joaquin Phoenix is the perfect middle ground and, and playing that evil emperor, that Borges-type character. Uh, and Joaquin Phoenix can do that. Uh, he, when you think of him in Gladiator Commodus, you hook that character right in here, boom. Well, this is a character that has to, you know, everyone on his plantation, whether it be uh, the people working for him, without, by, not by choice, or the ones that are, they have to respect him uh, and also fear him at the same time. Uh, but with with the comparison you made with Joaquin and Gladiator, he he is respected because people have to, but behind behind his back, they don't want to. It's like he has to to try and fight for that respect and it never feels like it's earned. And that's kind of part of his character. Whereas with, you're never questioning that with Christian Bale or like you didn't with DiCaprio, he commands that respect and he is the, uh, well, he commands uh, the respect by his position. And I think it's more fitting that he doesn't really deserve it. I mean, when you look at Leonardo DiCaprio's portrayal of Calvin Candy, he's not a businessman. That was his grandfather and his father who were the businessmen, the cotton men. Uh, the business runs itself. Now he's a boy emperor who in, indulges in his hedonistic <laughs> hobbies and vices. He's not, uh, a person who's worthy of the mantle very much in the way that Joaquin Phoenix would embody that. So I'm leaning a little bit more into the, well, evil okay. Uh, well, one last thing, one last thing is that again, I go back to the charisma. He's almost magnetic with it. And I don't see that from Joaquin uh, in many of his roles he's done. And definitely not in this role where I could see like an American psycho version of Christian Bale. He's got it. You think of Calvin candy. There's when he snaps, it's fearful, not psychosis. It's, it's fear. The guy's, just on, he's a different level of mania 
than psychotic. Um, Christian Bale, all day. I, I'm absolutely shocked that this wasn't your casting there, Warren. I really thought we were going to match up on that one. I thought for sure that Warren would pull out the big guns. I'm saving for Bale for later in the season. I just uh, – yeah. and, and he's yeah. not and, – and, you know, actually, I would waste all – I would empty the gun for Django because you know how much I love QT. For Django, I'm, I mean, I and I, I have. But wait until we get further down the sheet, I have emptied the gun. All right, gentlemen, this is easily – one of my favorite characters. So this will be our tiebreaker should we need one at the end. Dr. King Schultz, and God bless you both. I hate my job. I hate my job. John Malkovich versus Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's hear the argument for Daniel Day-Lewis. Why not? Oh, finally uh, starting with Warren. For the yeah, here we go. Daniel Day-Lewis... Uh, has wanted to work for Quentin Tarantino dating back to Pulp Fiction. Uh, he got a copy of the script, wanted to play Vincent Vega, but the part had already been promised to John Travolta. So I could see Daniel Day-Lewis coming back to play uh, Dr. King Schultz for Tarantino in Django if it was remade today. And when you think of Daniel Day-Lewis, we all know he can play anything, but more specifically, A Room with a View, how proper, sophisticated, and elegant his character is in that, which is just perfect uh, for Dr. King Schultz and Django, and um, you can't think of a better actor. Come on, D- Daniel Day fucking Lewis. You will never hear me argue for against Daniel Day Lewis. I mean, that's one of those where you almost play it as a trump card because you want to win the role. Uh, however, John Malkovich is is in the rarefied air of actors that could play step into a role that that Christoph Waltz has played, uh, especially consider kind of the. Again, you have to have the elegance, the grace. What's he going to do, the, the Russian accent? Like, I get look for rounder. <laughs> Your money is no, well, mine. It's a, it's a German accent this time. Uh, but no, he well, has no, that. No, but I, come on. He's going to play German? I mean, it, it, Daniel Day-Lewis could, could play anything. I, I, I Come on. I well, you're underselling Malkovich there. Of course he could play it. But there's also, like, I guess a, a wiliness to it, to that sophistication. You know, there's just that kind of uh, crazed – you know, maniacal planning that goes behind his, uh, his excuses. There's nothing maniacal about Dr. King Schultz. That guy is pure and pure. Good. That okay. character is all good. Yeah. No, no, but, not a, no, no evil or yes, none of that. Yes. It, it's, it's, it's planned. It is calculated, calculated, uh, maniacal behavior. But at the same time, I mean, when him and Django go to the, go to take out the sheriff and Django doesn't know what's going on. He just, goes and makes himself a beer. I mean, yeah, there's a little mania there that's going on again, calculated, but there's a wiliness. Well, um, at the time you think it's mania, but then it's later revealed that he was operating within his legal rights and it was actually very justified. Hence the, hence the calculated part of it. Yes, it is. But I'm saying John, John Malkovich is, he kind of has that persona that uh, Waltz uh, plays on screen with it. All right, gentlemen, great arguments. Three words. Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. You just did because you like being John Bill Malkovich. Off That's why the you top that. rope. Oh my God. I thought That's this was bullshit. a Warren stretch on paper. Oh, Malkovich, man, Malkovich, Malkovich. Wow. <laughs> All right. So good thing is we won't need the um, the tiebreaker. We are tied up going into the top of the call sheet. And you guys did not disappoint here. For the role of Django Freeman, we're going to hear an argument between Donald Glover and John David Washington. Let's hear the argument for John David Washington first. 
John David Washington, um, I, I, I've loved him in everything I've seen him in. Uh, got, you know, a great character. The first time I saw him was in Ballers. He played a wide receiver in there. I mean, just very magnetic on the screen. Just um, has has the personality. At first, I was worried. Is this like, okay, you know, Django's kind of a quiet character, gets more confident as the movie goes along, whereas John David Washington in some of his past roles has screened confidence, but I think he's transitioning. You can see him... Set, I mean, if Christopher Nolan trusts him to carry a movie like, like Tenet, I'm, you know, Quentin Tarantino can trust him to step into a role like Django. Uh, so he was great in The Black Klansman. I just can't say enough for this actor. Tough to recast, but he's a perfect fit for it. And, Warren, let's hear the argument for Mr. Atlanta, Donald Glover. Well, Donald Glover, he's an Emmy-winning actor and director. I think he's a special breed, and he hasn't had the movie that's launched him yet, as much success as he's had in television. And he's a multi-talented artist, much like Jamie Foxx. He's got a musical talent in addition to the acting. And I think he has the depth to really connect – with this character, uh, he's also from, he has Southern roots like Jamie Foxx. He's not from New York or LA. So there's probably part of his upbringing. He can also in some ways relate with the character. Uh, I think he's lived, a, 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 he's proven himself a little more, uh, as much as I love John David Washington. I mean, outside of Tenet and black Klansman, what's he done? Ballers. I mean, Jamie Foxx had already won an Oscar at this point. We, we need an actor who, who's somewhat proven himself. This material deserves that. We, we can't be uh, rolling the dice with somebody as much as I, again, as much as I love John David Washington. Look at Warren pulling out the research, talking about their similar uh, backgrounds of locales of where they've come from. So, Hey, listen, I love Donald Glover. Anybody who's stepped into the shoes of Lando Calrissian and you know, done Star Wars. I'm like, yeah, I love him. Uh, so again, uh, I, and, uh, and he does have, you know, the, the, the chops to do it for sure. But just, I don't know. It just, that, that when I see the, the intensity of, in the eyes of Django, uh, and so, especially in a lot of the later scenes of the film, uh, I, I see John David Washington fit in that. Not much to decide on here, boys. This one was a very, very easy decision to make. John David Washington. Man. I am a golden god! Recasting court is adjourned. All right. Your favorite segment, Warren, fan theory time. Uh, and um, you gotta love Quentin Tarantino fan theory. So I'm gonna reach out a little bit for this one. Uh, and this is a fairly recent fan theory. It started uh, making the, the, the internet uh, circuit uh, in, in here in 2020. Is that Rick Dalton is Calvin Candy? <laughs> the actor, he's actor playing Calvin fuck? Candy. Now, I, I, I'm you know I'm just gonna go ahead and. Uh, it's a fun theory, but the, the person who created it or came up with it, he almost disproves it by explaining it. Hey, uh, because, that's the rule. It can't be disproven it to be on the pod. But here's the thing. It's just that to to disprove it, you almost have to buy into another fan theory. So it's not like it's disproven by Tarantino himself. And I'll give you some evidence on both sides. So uh, for those not like you, Warren, who's a super fan of Quentin Tarantino, Essentially, all of his movies exist in two universes. The realer than real universe, which is basically like Inglorious Bastards, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Django and Shane. Uh, and then there is uh, the. Death Proof, Pulp Fiction, Hateful Eight. Uh, most of his movies are in the realer than real universe. There's actually only three 
that are in the movie movie universe, and that's Natural Born Killers, Dust Till Dawn, and Kill Bill. And, and like the Rick Dalton uh, fantasy movies, like Nebraska Jim and the 14 Fists. I of thought McCluskey. Death Proof was also in the movie movie universe. It's not. Hmm. Okay, so I, I, apparently, like again, if you buy into that theory, there are rules where you know a character from the movie movie universe can they can cross over because they're characters. They're, they're from movies. Like Mr. They're, Wolf in Pulp Fiction, he's a movie movie character in the real than real universe. Right. So those characters, you know, because they 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 are the movies that people watch in the realer than real universe. Um, so to have um, so to have Rick Dalton be Calvin Candy, an actor portraying him, you would have to have Rick Dalton from the realer than real universe playing a character, and it doesn't work. You see, because they're both in the realer than real universe. Mm, well, and to be fair on your point, Death Proof's place has been debated. Uh, right. I think it's in the realer than real, but it's I, I've seen it been placed on both different units. It's the only one that's kind of undecided. Uh, you may have to ask QT himself on that one. But that it's not a far-fetched fan theory because the characters are connected uh, in his in the Tarantino verse. I mean, we've seen the groundwork of that with Pulp Fiction's Vince Vega and Reservoir Dogs' Vic Vega, their brothers. Uh, also, Lee Donowitz, the film producer in True Romance, is the son of Donnie Donowitz from *Inglorious Bastards*. So there's always there, there's those connections. There's the connections. Actually, having a that's that not necessarily a lineage or a relationship, but this an actual character portraying them. It's a little bit more of a stretch. However, I will say that maybe some people pointed out. Well, maybe it is the uh, biographical story of Django in which. Uh, Rick Dalton is playing Calvin Candy. Uh, and then the other point that I saw in here that is perhaps the most evidence that it could be potential is that uh, for one of the Western sets in, in, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it was actually also the same set from a town in Django Unchained. So there was a crossover there and that it was the same same setting So for, for, for mm. one scene. So anyway, I thought you would appreciate that just because it does kind of further buy into the crossovers of the Tarantino verse. Well, he's always had that, not only with his characters and, and the films in different universes, but let's not forget before we move on, the brands, uh, Red Apple Cigarettes, Big mm -hmm. Kahuna Burger, Old Chattanooga Beer. Uh, you got, you know, the Wolf's Tooth uh, Dog Food or uh, the, the Jack Rabbit Slims, uh, Geo Juice and uh, the uh, 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 Teriyaki Donut. Yeah. So there's this this fleshed out universe. So who knows? I mean, heck, in Tarantino's mind, they all exist together and link together somehow. And we'll close out the film discussing the legacy of Django Unchained. Uh, only been out eight years, but uh, the themes of this film, uh, freedom, racism, capitalism, revenge, mythology, you know, it has that folklore element. And of course, love at its core. This movie is a love story. And, I, and I've always said that the greatest movies have a love story at its center. You know, Braveheart, my personal favorite, Gladiator, Titanic. I mean, despite all the action, despite all the epic stakes and uh, epic scale of the film, at the end of the day, love drives the story. Well, it's just, you can center almost any genre film around a love story. You can you know, fit anything around that and drive the storytelling element and, and have there be stakes, but not only like on a big level, but on a personal level that you can relate to. So uh, this is almost in a way a, a fairy tale uh, in the sense that um, it, it mirrors the Siegfried Broomhilda story that Schultz tells. So this is a real life fairy tale uh, in the sense that uh, Django follows and kind of what we talked about earlier. He 
you know, he follows that in his own way to rescue his Broomhilda. And when you talk about the enduring quality of Django Unchained, what better person than a tour provocateur, the filmmaker of the movie, Quentin Tarantino, to talk about what he believes the enduring quality of Django Unchained would be in the future 30, 40 years from now? At the end of the day, yeah. I think um, true, true empowerment for the black male. Yeah. watching the film, and true empowerment for the black male at that period of time. In this, I wanted to take, uh, you know, I, I parallel Django's journey with the, with the Siegfried Broomhilda myth from, you know, Wagner's The Ring, and even longer than that. Uh, it's one of the, the oldest German uh, legends. And I parallel that, that, that uh, Django is a, a Siegfried-like fi figure, and the, and, his, and the woman he's looking for is truly named Broomhilda. And I wanted to give this kind of story of a black man in that time period where he's considered three-fifths of a human to be able to go all the way to the pit of hell to extract his woman, his, um, uh, his princess in exile, who's basically locked in the tower of the evil kingdom by the evil ruler and get her out and play it in that uh, and give it the spaghetti western operatic view of the whole thing the bigness of opera the hugeness of of, of uh, a folkloric legend and then mix that also with uh, negro folklore from the time of the of the powerless animal who's able to triumph over the powerful animals in the jungle and the forest through uh, cunning and guile I mean, exactly. I didn't know that that he drew directly from that, from the the inspiration. But I guess it it, it makes sense to do that. Uh, but well, they have just, a scene where Schultz tells him the story. Well, yeah, I know, but I mean, you know, did he see? Did he read that? Yeah, I guess that makes more sense. You can use the Broomhilda character. Uh, I mean, even it just fucking seemed, names the character Broomhilda. I know. I don't even know what I'm thinking. It just like you just see. I guess it's more of a testament to Tarantino that it seems so natural that the story would exist separate from the myth. And that Django would be inspired by the myth, less about Tarantino being inspired to write the story about Django from that myth. So, you know, it just, you know, life imitating art and whatnot. Uh, so it just, it's... It, uh, well, Tarantino lets the characters, by the time he gets into the third act, he he lets the characters kind of guide the thing. You know, he's he's just kind of shepherding them along, but he, he doesn't force the outcome. He kind of lets them lead the way. So that's why it has that organic feel, because he lets the story unfold. Uh, and what this film did for Tarantino's career, I mean, of course, he was or already Quentin Tarantino, but it was his second Oscar win. And it was, let's face it, it's a strong follow-up to Inglorious Bastards, which for a lot of people, you know, I think Kill Bill and Jackie Brown are as good as any movies he, as anyone's made. But for the wide world movie-going audiences, uh, Bastards really cemented his place as a super elite, all-time great filmmaker. And for him to follow that up with Django, I mean, that's like, hey, I'm not going anywhere unless I make that decision. I mean, he really, like, I mean, he just kind of double-stamped it. it. It elevated him to even further heights. I mean, it's high risk, high reward to do that. I mean, you know, he, he transitioned from making, okay, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to take these uh, highly stylized films about, you know, stories that I've created, but that people don't really have a connection to to taking his his that art form and his his canvas and what he does with that art form and applying it to stories that people do have very close connections to with issues that can sometimes uh, be uncomfortable 
and make an entertaining film about it. I mean, not many directors could do that. Yeah, when you look at his films, I, we talk about Sergio Leone being such a strong influence and how he almost called in Glorious Bastards Once Upon a Time in uh, Occu- Nazi-occupied France, uh, and then he ended up doing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I feel like any of his films, you could call put Once Upon a Time in the title because they all have this classic, as I mentioned earlier, those classic story elements, but also that, that folklore uh, once upon a time, I mean, it's a fairy. T- everything has a fairy tale ending in the Tarantino verse. Uh, justice is served. The good guys win, and the bad guys get their asses kicked. This has been a story that Tarantino's had difficulty letting go. I mean, he just seems like he wants to do more about Django, more about that that universe, like that particular universe, uh, that story in that time period. Uh, and um, he's talked about he's had ninety minutes of unused material, and he. Thought about uh, adapting it into a, a mini a miniseries, which he said back in 2014. I don't know if we'll, we'll see well, that. He ended up doing that with Hateful Eight with the unused footage, as I mentioned right. earlier. So, so yeah, I don't know go. if we'll see that happen. I think if they do, they That'd need to badass. include this, the Scotty Harmony part in it that you mentioned <sighs> earlier. You have to, they have to do reshoots, man. They don't. I don't think they shot it. Yeah, uh, exactly. So uh, then you had the uh, uh, there's a 2013 comic adaptation of Django and Shane. I, I really would love to read that. And then further past that, you had a 2015 Django Zorro sequel slash crossover comic that was written by Tarantino. Uh, and even as recently as 2019, uh, both Jamie Foxx and Antonio Banderas said that they would be down uh, to do a film adaptation and reprise their characters. And, uh, well, they also had a, a sequel novel. It was an aborted film sequel as well titled Django in White Hell which he ended up using that chapter for a name in Hateful Eight uh, three years later in that film. But forgot to mention that the comic book adaptation uh, that was released in 2013 of the feature film was uh, done by none other than DC Comics. Yes, I mean, you had some some clout there as far as a, a major comic book publisher doing that. So, yeah, I forgot. Well, to then the that. sequel, yeah, the sequel being written by Tarantino, but it was released by Dynamite Entertainment. So DC mm. did not participate in the, uh, the, the, the sequel crossover comic. Mm, I see. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, spoofs and parodies of the film, over 257 connections in pop culture. Uh, most notably in 2014 in Million Ways to Die in the West, Jamie Foxx cameos as Django. <laughs> I didn't know that. I got to see that. I do want to see it too. Yeah. He, there's like somebody running a carnival game or something that he kills called you know, the, the, it's called runaway slave and he, he kills the guy. So that's running it. I'll take a shot. People died to fail. Yeah, and QT, you know he signed off on that because oh, QT sure. loves movies being connected to movies from what I can tell. I mean, he even signed off on uh, the studio that produced Out of Sight uh, to use the rights for the Michael Keaton character from Jackie Brown, uh, his adaptation of the Elmer Leonard novel uh, in their movie just so they could have that connection. And Michael Keaton ended up playing both roles in, uh, in both movies, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, Tarantino seems like a type, like if it's done right, he loves that you know his character's permeating out in the movie movie universe uh, the, the, the cinema uh, lexicon yeah the greater movie movie universe yeah yeah uh the film was spoofed at twice on snl a hungover games that parody movie that i have not seen uh, yeah. family guy the late late show with james corden and the brothers grimsby with sasha baron cohen it has been referenced in a hateful eight once upon a time in hollywood uh Tarantino keeping those connections with, with the Tarantino verse, SNL, Conan, Joe Rogan podcast, Trainwreck, Silicon Valley, and Jeopardy, as well as you mentioned earlier, Red Dead Redemption Two. 
Yeah. I believe, you know, given that it's only been out eight years, we will see many more connections as this is an iconic uh, piece of uh, film history. And Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times summed it up best when he said, quote, what Tarantino has is an appreciation for gut-level exploitation film appeal, combined with an artist's desire to transform that gut element with something higher, better, more daring. His films challenge the taboos in our society in the most direct way possible, and at the same time, add an element of parody or satire, unquote. That is going to do it for this episode of Replay Value. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, and if you love what you hear, take the time to rate, review, and share with a friend. You can follow us on Twitter at ReplayValuePod. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every other Tuesday, and we'll see you then. Bye! Waldo Pickles Production.